Christchurch, New Malden, 20th of October 2019, 11 o'clock service. Becky Mills speaking in the series, Romans and the Covenant, what the covenant has brought us. So, what the covenant has brought us. It's amazing, isn't it, how many people fall out with their family and live in a permanent state of estrangement. They may only be a telephone call away, they may even live nearby. But they don't want to speak to these people or see them or have anything to do with them. And imagining that continuing for years and years. There's something deeply disturbing about the whole picture, isn't there? Yet a great many people live like that. I have an example in my own family a long time ago. My parents split up and didn't communicate for 10 years. Gradually after that time, they started to speak on the phone and then they met briefly. It took a diagnosis of a terminal illness to bring about a reconciliation between them. Not as a married couple, but as two people living side by side who still loved each other. A vast number of people live exactly like my parents did during those silent years in relation to God. But in our passage today, Paul is talking about the reconciliation to end all reconciliations. At the centre of it all, we have peace with God. Paul is painting a picture of a loving, welcoming, personal relationship between individual human beings and God, which holds good for all eternity because we are reconciled to God through his action in Jesus. And having been reconciled to God, we begin to reflect his character because we're now committed to growth towards spiritual maturity. With Paul, salvation has a past, a present and a future. Because of what Christ has done in the past, we stand in God's grace in the here and now. And we can have confidence that because we're part of God's covenant family, he will rescue us one day in the future when we're held accountable for our actions. So in my talk this morning, I would really like to emphasize the centrality of God's reconciling action in Jesus and how we live out reconciliation with God and with one another in our Christian lives. Paul begins, therefore, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. There's a lot in that first verse, isn't there? But Paul has been carefully laying the foundation for this complex statement in the first four chapters of Romans. That's why he begins with, therefore. Paul's starting point in the first chapter is God's anger with sinful humanity. Paul's saying there's something profoundly wrong with the human race. Every single human being is implicated. We're all guilty. Andrew and I went to A Taste of Honey last weekend at Richmond Theatre. 
It's dubbed a kitchen sink drama written in the late 50s in reaction to the drawing room comedies of Noel Coward and the like. It was a rather depressing reminder of how destructive patterns of behavior are passed down through the generations. The mother marries and abandons her teenage daughter. Her daughter is abandoned by her lover after becoming pregnant. Her mother returns when she's jilted by her husband. She kicks out her daughter's only friend who's gay and they live together in poverty and squalor. No doubt to play out the same scenarios all over again. We are all of us in need of something that we can't find or manufacture for ourselves to free us from the clutch of brokenness and failure. That's why Paul uses the passive, we have been justified in verse one, because it's an act of God, a gift from him. The term justified is borrowed from the ancient law courts and means acquitted. We've been granted a royal pardon. Paul uses the same word justification to describe the character of God, which is translated the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17. We have been justified then also means we have been made righteous. Paul says we are justified made righteous by faith. And this comes as no surprise. His whole point in chapter three has been to say that the justification of God's people has always happened like this. Faith in God's promises has always been the measure of being part of God's family. Even Abraham is justified by faith, as we heard in our reading earlier. In Romans 4, 9, Paul says, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. It didn't happen through a privileged identity expressed in circumcision or the law. Those things came later. Faith in God's promises was what marked Abraham out as a righteous man. I found a justification by faith a foreign concept as a girl in my 20s. You, you grow up in God's family, you're very conscious of being in a relationship with God and being loved and accepted by him. And that's what we all want for our young people, don't we? My love for God was instinctive, like a child's love for their parents. I hadn't worked out what it all meant, even when I studied theology. I thought I was basically a good person and stood in God's grace. I'd sorted out the end point, but not the starting point. It wasn't until I'd fully taken on board the idea of human frailty, and mine in particular, that I was able to appreciate the full implication of faith in God's promises. You have to be aware of needing rescue before you can trust God's promise to save you from the consequences of being held accountable one day for your actions. When I realized this, everything fell into place and I understood what saving faith meant. It means trusting in God's action in Jesus alone 
to rescue us on the day of judgment. So, we've been justified by faith. Faith in the belief that God's action in Jesus brings reconciliation between God and humanity. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The peace treaty has been sealed between God and humanity. It brings the whole reality of God's covenant with his people afresh into the world. The reality that God is always committed to us. We can face a future unclouded by guilt and anxiety. In Romans 3.25, Paul says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Under the old covenant, the day of atonement was the day the high priest made an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. God and the people were reconciled through this act of atonement, which means covering over. After the blood of a slaughtered goat was offered to God, another goat was released into the wilderness to symbolically carry away the sins of the people. Under the new covenant, Jesus' death is the gift that makes peace with God. Like Nathan said a couple of weeks ago, in Jesus, God fulfills both sides of the bargain. He provides the sacrifice and opens the way forward. Jesus' death covers over the world's failure. It cancels out the consequences of human sin, that self-destructive downward spiral, and opens up the way for reconciliation with God and with one another. God reconciles. We are reconciled. That is the grace in which we now stand. We're surrounded by God's love and generosity. We can inhale his goodness, his wisdom, and his power. We're invited to be true image bearers of God. And at the same time, we are each invited to be our unique selves. We have the solid, sure hope that we belong to God through faith in his action in Jesus. And we're assured of salvation. When the final judgment comes, we will be rescued. But Paul says in verse 3, even though we have this hope, we won't be immune from suffering in this life. He reminds us that as Christians, we can persevere during our suffering because of where our hope is placed. And perseverance produces character. Paul doesn't let us forget that the Christian life is much more than simply receiving salvation and enjoying this one-to-one -one relationship. The Christian life is all about developing character. It's about growth and transformation through suffering, mentally and physically, through hardship, through loss, through betrayal and disappointment. Being part of God's family in the here and now is aspirational. It means we've been given the new shape of the character of God, the righteousness of God for us to grow into. So as Christians, we're justified. We've been made righteous 
because we've, given that, we've been given that new shape of the character of God. In saying this, Paul knows that there's a long way for each of us to travel. There's lots of room for growth, but we know how to become righteous because God models it for us. He models reconciliation, which is absolutely central to our faith. It's founded on the promises enshrined in the universal covenant and ritualistically acted out on the Day of Atonement. Reconciliation defines the shape and scope of God's love. So how should we practice the reconciliation God has modeled for us in a practical way in our everyday lives? I wonder if any of you have read Eric Ramake's book, All Quiet on the Western Front, which tells of a remarkable encounter between two enemy soldiers during the Second World War. During battle, a German soldier took shelter in a crater made by artillery shells. Looking around, he saw a man wounded, an enemy soldier. He was dying. The German soldier's heart went out to him. He gave him water from his canteen and listened as the dying man spoke of his wife and children. The German helped him find his wallet and take out pictures of his family to look at one last time. In that encounter, these two men ceased to be enemies. The German had seen the wounded soldier in a new way. Not as an enemy combatant, but as a father, a husband. Someone who loves and is loved. Someone just like him. They made peace. They were enemies in warfare and they were reconciled. That's a moving and inspiring story, isn't it? But most of us don't have the opportunity to do anything that heroic. We're too busy dealing with the emotional baggage of day-to-day relationships in everyday life. But God forgave human sin, covered over human frailty, so that he could reconcile us to himself. We were no longer his enemies. He made peace with us. So firstly, let's recognise that reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness. That's an idea that really stretches us, doesn't it? But forgiveness alone may not mend a broken relationship if we don't continue working towards a full reconciliation with the person involved. Of course, if that's within the bounds of possibility. If we ignore the fact that reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness, then the relationship with the other person is just written off. Each time we ignore reconciliation, another relationship dies a death. This growing count of broken relationships results in increasing loneliness and isolation. So firstly, take the initiative God took the the initiative and reconciled us to himself. So we have to do the same. In Matthew 5, 23 to 24, it says, Therefore, 
if you are offering your gift at the altar. And there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Secondly, talk. Jesus says we have to communicate with the other person. If the other person blames you, accepting sole responsibility may be your only way forward. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Thirdly, respond with love, understanding, and patience. Pray for, speak about, and act towards the other person in a way that expresses love, not judgment, criticism, or hate. Well, very few of us would admit to hating anyone, never mind expressing that hatred out loud. But how hard it is to respond lovingly when people are rude and unkind to us. And how hard it is not to talk about their behaviour critically. But Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Love the other person. This doesn't mean ignoring what they've done. We have to try and put ourselves in the shoes of that other person to try and understand them, not justify them. People who abuse others have often been abused themselves. They're just repeating what they've experienced as normal. This doesn't excuse their behaviour, but it does give some understanding as to why it happens. I think 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 says it all. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Learn it if you can and reflect on it to adjust your attitudes, words and actions towards the other person. I find it brings me up short so many times in my day-to-day -day relationships. Be patient. Often a person has to process the damage he or she has caused to a relationship many times before actually taking action to deal with what they've done. Be thankful. If you're a follower of Jesus, realising that you've been reconciled to God should generate a deep sense of gratitude. Such gratitude towards God leads to grace towards others. In conclusion, Paul is painting a picture of a loving, welcoming, personal relationship between individual human beings and God, which holds good for all eternity because we're reconciled to God through his action in Jesus. And once God made peace with us, we're no longer his enemies. We begin to reflect his character. With Paul, salvation has a past, a present, and a future. Because of what Christ has done in the past, we stand in God's grace in the here and now. And we can have confidence 
that because we're part of God's covenant family, he will rescue us one day in the future when we're each held accountable for our actions. In the meantime, we're called to imitate God's reconciling action in Jesus by practicing reconciliation in all our relationships. Take the initiative, talk and respond with love, understanding and patience. Amen.